Okay, well, welcome to the second week of The Fruit, the Lamb, and the Bread, a few famous food stories from Scripture and why they matter. And last week we uh, talked a bit about the importance of food in the garden, and now we're going to talk about the importance of food in the wilderness. So by way of review, um, at the end of last time we had talked about two aspects of food, God's gift of food being um, provision and delay. That's one way of putting it. So that... Um, in the garden, food is one of the main aspects of his provision. Right at the end of Genesis 1, uh, God sets a menu for them, as Peter Lightheart says. And uh, in Genesis 2, not only does he allow them to um, eat from every tree in the garden, he actually commands it. So he sets a, um, sets a menu for them. Welcome, ladies. Sorry. Yeah, glad you're here. No, I was just saying that uh, by way of reminder and review, last week we uh, had talked about the aspects of provision and delay with respect to food, that God provides food, but there's an aspect of delay as well. So in the garden, he provides food at the end of Genesis 1. He gives them every green plant for food. And then it, you know, in the middle of Genesis 2, he commands them to eat from every tree in the garden with two exceptions, the tree of uh, wisdom and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the same thing is true in the story of the Exodus. God provides food for them, water and bread, that is manna, and quail, so he provides some meat for them. But there's also an aspect of delay. Uh, Sometimes the delay actually happens in the wilderness itself. They have to wait before their thirst or their hunger is satisfied. And more than that, they have to wait for a long time, for 40 years, before they actually get to the promised land. The land flowing with, well, food, milk, and honey. So there's this aspect of delay that's very much associated with, um, with food. The question could naturally arise, which is, why the wait? Why does God require people to wait for his good gifts, in this case, the gift of food? And I think that question can be answered in several different ways, one having to do with creation and one having to do with the fall. Now I'll talk a little bit, a little bit about the restoration as well. Um, It seems to me that there's an aspect, and I mentioned this a little last week, but again by way of reminder, there's an aspect of uh, waiting and delay even in creation. That is, even apart from human sin, even apart from um, Adam and Eve rebelling against God in the garden, there was an aspect, a necessary aspect of waiting. So Adam and Eve are given the Garden of Eden, but they're not given the whole world yet. They're told to subdue the earth. Adam and Eve are um, commanded to work, and yet it becomes clear later on that not only are they to work, but they are eventually to enter into God's rest. That comes clear in the rest of Scripture. So that there's something waiting for them out there. Um, I've argued in other places that Adam and Eve um, were naked in the garden, and that they were meant to be clothed, because clothing in the rest of the ancient Near East, and the rest of Scripture, is something very positive. In fact, our... Goal, our destiny, our inheritance as Christians is to be clothed, clothed with the glory of God, clothed with resurrection bodies. So the aspect of a Sabbath rest, the aspect of a global inheritance, not just the Garden of Eden, the aspect of clothing um, as the answer to nakedness, and the two trees in the garden from which they are not yet allowed to eat, all point to God. Um, giving Adam and Eve good gifts, but also having some gifts outstanding. 
And if you think about it, it makes sense because God, the eternal God, outside of time and space, created a world in which there was time and created a world in which there was plenty of space. And apparently one of his purposes in doing so was to extend his glory and his goodness in time and in space, even apart from the fall. So he's got lots of time. Adam and Eve um, are given a particular task, a particular vocation, and it's something that would have been fulfilled even apart from the fall over time. Here's your sanctuary of God. Here's the Garden of Eden. Go now, fill the earth with images of God and and be the means and the agents of His glory throughout the earth. Bring His goodness, bring His care to the whole world. And when you're done doing that, then you will enter into His rest and you will be clothed and you will have a royal feast. So I think even in creation, even apart from the fall, there's this aspect of um, human beings needing to be, okay, here's the word I'm going to use, but don't misunderstand me, needing to be perfected. Not implying that they were sinful in any way, but just implying that like children who need to grow up and become all that they were meant to be, um, Adam and Eve needed to become all that God meant them to be. And uh, there was a process of maturation that was involved in that. And indeed, one can see that even in the New Testament when, when Paul will talk about moving from um, having a, a kind of natural condition to a natural bodies to having spiritual bodies, something that he apparently envisaged for Adam and Eve. So we actually move to a higher level, a higher mode of existence when we move into our resurrection bodies, something apparently that God always intended for us. So this seems to be God's purpose and plan and creation, even apart from the fall. There seem to be indications of that um, even in the garden. So waiting is not just a function of the fall, in my view. Waiting is also something that's um, inherent to our um, creational um, status and being. However, um, the fall does increase the weight. Because Adam and Eve, instead of expanding the garden to fill the earth... So, the kind of, so that the kind of cultivation and the kind of culture that was going to happen in the garden, instead of that expanding and filling the earth, um, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. So instead of expansion, you have expulsion, which uh, obviously sets things back just a bit. <laughs> um, they lose their inheritance. Instead of the inheritance gaining and coming into their full inheritance, they lose what inheritance they had. And really, Genesis 1 through 11 is one reiteration of that theme after another, where um, not just Adam and Eve, but then Cain, and uh, certainly Abel by dying, but, but Cain, and then um, in the flood with Noah, and then in the Tower of Babel, there's one account after another of the inheritance being lost. That's true um, in Genesis 1 through 11, and it's also true in the story of the Exodus. Our focus is on Exodus today, and it's clear that the weight was extended by the fact of human sin. You know, in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that um, one day he's going to have an inheritance in the land. He's a sojourner at the moment. But why is it in Genesis 15 that he doesn't get the land immediately? It's right at the very end, and it's because God tells him that the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. So, um, 
there's, there's a waiting that comes because God is waiting now to judge the Amorites and he's not willing to do so just yet. Um, and certainly uh, after they've been waiting for hundreds of years in Egypt and they come back out, you know, they, they actually go pretty quickly to the promised land. I mean, they get, the, they get the law on the mountain, they go to the promised land. Why is it that they spend 40 years in the desert instead of a couple of months? Well, it's because they didn't believe that God would take them in. They didn't believe the spies' report. The 12 spies came back, and you had Caleb and Joshua who had a good report, and you had the 10 spies who had a bad report. They end up for 40 years in the desert so that that whole entire generation can die off. It's because of sin. So certainly sin exacerbates uh, the waiting um, that happens. And indeed, one could even say that that waiting becomes God's prescription for sin. It's not just a penalty, it seems to me. It's not just a punishment for sin. Well, okay, now you're going to have to wait until you get your inheritance and some of you actually won't come into your inheritance. But in many ways, the waiting seems to be a prescription. And the story of the Exodus is a really good example of that. Because in the Exodus, um, Moses is told by God to tell Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me or that he may worship me and then as I said last week the entire book of Exodus is sort of oriented toward tabernacle building so I mean you have you have the deliverance from Egypt and you have the giving of the law in Exodus uh, 20 but from about Exodus 21 forward for the most part you have um, an account of tabernacle building this is how you're supposed to build the place where you'll worship me and then this is how they actually built the place where they would worship God the climax of Exodus is worshiping God. And I think that's really important because the idea is before you come into your inheritance, before you come into the land flowing with milk and honey, you've got to learn to put first things first. That is, you need to learn to worship and obey God. And so they get a 40-year lesson in worshiping and obeying God Always with the prospect of kingship and inheritance and being in the land and, and, and uh, enjoying the milk and honey. Always with that prospect ahead of them. But in the meantime, they have to get the lesson. And the lesson is, learn to worship God. Let the Son learn to serve the Father and obey the Father. And then the Father's inheritance will come. First things first. I mean, essentially, it's getting right what Adam and Eve got wrong, right? Adam and Eve weren't willing to wait. They weren't willing to serve and obey the Father. They wanted the inheritance instead of the Father. Israel does the same thing. And, of course, Jesus tells the same story in his, his parable of the prodigal son. I mean, the story of the prodigal son really is the story of Adam and Eve, and it really is the story of Israel. It's the story of a humanity that wants... The gift and not the giver wants the inheritance and not the father. And it sums up that storyline really well. So it seems to me that the story of the Exodus is the story of um, God's people attempting to learn and not learning very well for the most part in the Old Testament. What it means to worship God and what it means to obey God before they come into the inheritance. And really, the Old Testament is pretty much a story of repeated failure in that respect. Adam and Eve don't get it. Israel doesn't get it. Um, it's, it's pretty much a, a litany of failures, and we'll certainly get that sense um, in just a moment. So, 
we wait um, because of God's purposes in creation. We wait because of human sin um, coming from the fall. Um, we wait because God's purposes in restoration involve um, restoring us to his presence and um, restoring our communion with him, our relationship with him, before they involve giving us the rest of the inheritance, the kind of rulership and the kind of dominion and the kind of um, enjoyment of all of God's gifts that we were meant to have. But first things first, and that's, the, that's the, what Adam and Eve didn't get and it's what Israel certainly didn't get. So what's the place of food in all this? Well, food becomes perhaps the main example of a gift of God which is given to us in the present, but which also points to a future provision, points to a future and a greater gift. There are other things too. The aspect of clothing is one. The aspect of rest is another. I've mentioned some of those. But, but food crops up, unintended, food crops up again and again and again as the gift of God, which is to be enjoyed in the present but which also anticipates the future and for which one must wait. Okay, does that make sense? All right, that's sort of the big picture. Now let's talk about the Exodus story in particular. Uh, Last week we um, pointed to uh, an ancient Near Eastern text in which it was clear that human beings, beings were created to feed the gods so the gods are hungry, and why do human beings exist? Well, it's to feed the gods, and that's, that stood in quite some contrast to a god who feeds his people. We see that um, in Genesis 1 and 2, for example. Well, the same thing is going on very much in the Exodus story, so I thought I would point that out. And you've got some text here this time. So if you look with me, I'm going to read Deuteronomy 32 and Hosea 11. Both of these texts point out, both of these passages point out um, the constant rebellion of the people, the constant turning away of the people from their God, from the God and the Father who feeds them to, um, to, their, to, to their very ironic attempt to feed their own gods. Okay, here's Deuteronomy 32. Very much an Exodus context, right? But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, and kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Okay, let me just stop there for a minute. I can't resist. The way in which the Exodus is described here is very much in terms of creation. I mentioned this last time, that the creation story is told um, as an anticipation of the coming Exodus, and the Exodus harkens back to the creation. Well, here you see it really clearly. Um, The Lord uh, found uh, Jacob, or Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. That howling waste language is the, uh, the uh, formless and void of Genesis 1. So, um, and that's a very uncommon word in the Hebrew Bible. 
So we found them in a formless and void area is the idea. Formless and void, that, that particular language, tohu vavohu, kind of, is, it kind of feels like formless and void, tohu vavohu. That sort of, um, that sort of language is actually used of a desert. Because it's deserts that have no form, that are empty. And in this formless and void place, God is like an eagle hovering, fluttering over his people. And the word, the same word is used there as, is, as used in Genesis 1 where it talks about the Spirit hovering, fluttering over the waters. So you get this fluttering of the bird-like spirit um, over the waters, hovering over the waters. One thinks of the waters of creation, one thinks of the waters of the Red Sea, and one thinks of the desert-like waste in both cases, waiting for God to uh, fill it. So, anyway, this, this sort of language is meant to draw your mind back to Genesis 1 and to creation. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. And here comes the food imagery. And he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rocks. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of rams, rams of fashion and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. What a description of food. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Jeshurun is simply a new, another name for Israel, poetic name for Israel. You grew fat, stout, and sleek, that he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And what do they do? This God who has fed them with the curds from the herd and milk and fat of lambs and rams of fashion and goats and the finest of wheat and so forth and foaming wine. What do they do? Verse 17, they sacrifice to demons that were no gods. And of course, sacrifice is, is feeding the gods. So they're busy feeding gods while God is feeding them. And then you've got a number of covenant curses that are going to come upon them, plagues and pestilence and um, ferocious animals, which ironically will now eat them instead of being eaten by them. And even in verse 32, if you look down, I mean, the food even goes bad. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and cruel venom of asp. Then God will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? So those gods that you've been feeding, if they've been eating the fat of your sacrifices and drinking the wine of your offerings, well, let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So the same thing that we saw last week in Genesis 1 is right here in Deuteronomy 32. I took care of you and fed you. You're busy feeding your gods. Let them take care of you. And of course they can't and they won't. A similar thing is going on in Hosea uh, 11, 1 through 12. And this is a reference to, to the Exodus. When Israel was a child... I loved him, this is God speaking, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Israel is called the son of God in Exodus 4.22. I mentioned that passage just a few minutes ago when I said that Moses was told by God to go to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, let my son go. Because in the ancient world, the son was the one who got the inheritance. So Israel is the son who gets the inheritance. 
Let my son go that he may serve me. Well, here's the same thing happening again. Israel is the child of God. Israel is the son of God. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's a reference to the Exodus. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. So there they are, feeding the gods again. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. It's beautiful. So this is a picture of God as the Father gently caring for His people and feeding them while they're busy sacrificing to other gods. That's, uh, in brief, the story of the Exodus. It's a story of failure with respect to food. Again and again, not trusting God with respect to food, taking His blessings for granted, and then attempting to feed the gods ironically, which is really at the very heart of idolatry, right? So um, you get the same sort of critique in Isaiah again and again, which is um, instead of worshiping the God who formed you and who gives you strength and who gives you wisdom, you worship the things that you yourself have formed and that are products of your own strength and of your own wisdom. And um, in this case, it's instead of worshiping the God who has um, fed you, you worship things that you yourself must feed. And that's, that's throughout the prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah. How can you do that? How can you make an idol and feed it and carry it around and carve it and plate it with gold and then worship it? Um, so I would say that the definition of idolatry is, is um, seeking strength and wisdom and sustenance and nourishment from the product of your own hands. Now we do that in a different but, but no less insidious way um, in our own time as well. We, we seek our significance from the, product, um, from the product of our hands, from the work of our hands, just as they did. Okay, um, in, uh, as answer to that very sad story of the Exodus, sort of big picture, their failure to... Um, accept food from God and provision from God, much less uh, wait for uh, more provision. We see in Matthew 2 the answer, the proper answer to the story of the Exodus. This is the birth narrative of Jesus. And I want us just to see before we, uh, in a little while, we'll get to the baptism of Jesus and see how that picks up on some Exodus themes. But I want us to see right now how right from his birth, the Gospel writers, Matthew in particular, sees Jesus as the proper answer to the Exodus. Now, when they had departed, that is the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And what does that remind you of in the Exodus? A king... Um, attempting to kill children. Of course, this is a reminder of Pharaoh, right? And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in, in Bethlehem and, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Now what's really interesting to this about this is that Matthew sees in Jesus' trip to Egypt as an infant the fact that he went down to Egypt and stayed there for a while and then came back. He sees that as an advanced telling of the story of the Exodus. Like, even when Jesus was a baby, he was already acting out the Exodus in his life. But he was going to do it in the right way. The Exodus in the Old Testament, that went horribly wrong. They came out of Egypt, God delivered them through the Red Sea, He gave them His law, and from the golden calf on, and even before that, they're grumbling, they're murmuring, they're complaining, they're disobeying. It was one disastrous disobedience after another. And yet, in Jesus, even from the time he was an infant, you see that he is going to be the one who enacts the Exodus in the right way. The story of the Exodus is going to come to its fulfillment in the right way in Jesus. And how that happens will come clear in just a little bit. I'll I'll show you how that happens in his life. But biblical writers delighted in anticipations of the Exodus story. Um... Previews. We watch a preview of a, mirror, uh, of a movie, you know, and it gives us a little sense of what's to come. Um, sort of an appetizer to stay in keeping with our food theme. And biblical writers um, loved appetizers, anticipations of what was to come, and particularly of the Exodus. So, you know, in the book of Genesis, it happens all the time. You know, you've got, uh, you've got Abraham going down to Egypt. Of course, he's kind of a scoundrel with respect to his wife because he says it's his sister. And, uh, you know, she gets placed in the harem of uh, Pharaoh. Not good. But um, what the author of Genesis is really impressed with is that he comes out of Egypt with great plunder. Same thing happens to Isaac. Same thing happens in a grand way with Joseph, who goes down to Egypt as a slave and ends up as the ruler of Egypt. And all of these stories in the lives of the patriarch are, of course, pointing forward to the great grand story, which is the climax of the first five books of the Bible, the story of the Exodus. So in lots of ways, the author of Genesis is pointing ahead to the grand story of the Exodus. And the the gospel writer, Matthew, in this case, is doing the same sort of thing. Hey, the new Exodus is about to come. The real way that the story should have gone is about to happen. And here, even when Jesus was a baby, you could see it because he's going down into Egypt and he's coming back out um, just like the people of Israel had many years before. Okay, so with that in mind, that uh, uh, overall failure with respect to the Exodus, failing the food test again and again with respect to the Exodus in the Old Testament, and yet pointing forward to Jesus who's going to bring about a new exodus in his own ministry and life, who's going to bring about the true restoration to God's presence um, and the true restoration to God's land, that which um, the exodus and the hope of the promised land had always pointed to. So that's where we're heading with this. Before I do these uh, texts here, any questions and um, if you're uh, you know, hopelessly lost or are missing some connections, this is a good time to ask. Is it clear? Okay. Okay, let's look then at uh, the Exodus story. Um, I'm not going to read through, you'll be relieved to know, I'm not going to read through all of these passages, but I did want to point out how many times the food theme comes up in Exodus. Uh, we talked a little bit about food in the Old Testament last uh, week. 
and um, sometimes memory fails. It's amazing how many times, I mean, I was surprised to see how many times the food theme comes up. I mean, it's interesting. In Exodus 15, right after they have been delivered from the Egyptians and God has miraculously brought them through the Red Sea, as soon as Miriam gets done singing her song, <laughs> very next verse, so Miriam sings her song in verse 21. Praise the Lord, He has delivered us. Verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. The very first thing after the uh, passage through the Red Sea is, the, is a water test. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he puts the log in the water, and the water becomes sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now there was no punishment here. I mean, they were hungry, they cried out to the Lord, and He simply graciously uh, delivers them. There's not even a rebuke here. Um, so it's as if to say, I will take care of you. What I find really interesting in this passage is that they're thirsty and they want water. But before they get the water, I mean, when they get the water, the water becomes sweet. And where the water becomes sweet, what does the Lord do? I mean, this, this verse could almost seem like an interruption. Look, they're just thirsty. They just want some water. But when, he, when the water becomes sweet, before they get to Elam, what does he make for them? And we'll find this happening again and again and again. Just at the point where they're hungry or they're thirsty, it'll be something like this. And God gave them a commandment. You're like, why does he do that? They're thirsty. And he gives them a commandment. And yet I think already we're anticipating that theme that's going to come forward when Jesus is in the wilderness and speaks to the, uh, uh, speaks to the devil. Remember what he says coming from Deuteronomy? Man does not live by bread, or in this case, by water alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. It's interesting how many times you'll have hunger and thirst, and then right next to it is, God doesn't just provide the water, doesn't just provide the bread. He provides a word for them, a commandment, some sort of revelation. And you see it here. And it's summed up in that Deuteronomy passage, not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But you see it here as well. He's not just interested in giving them water. He wants to give them, in this case, a statute and a rule. And the testing is not just a food test. It's a commandment test. These things go together um, throughout Scripture. Reminds you a little bit of of Jesus. We'll see this later on, but it reminds you a little bit of Jesus in, um, in John 4. When he says, uh, the disciples said, hey, you hungry? No, I'm not hungry. Why aren't you hungry? What does he say? I have food to eat that you don't know about. And what is it? The Word of God. Yeah, and to do the will of the one who sent me. Yeah. So that, that close connection between food and the will and the Word of God, you'll see that again and again in these passages. So when Jesus says that kind of thing, 
I think he's drawing on something that comes from the story of the Exodus. Okay. Um, the story of uh, provision of water is found in Exodus 15. It's also found in Exodus 17. And once again, the people are very thirsty and they're grumbling. And in this case, um, you have this the, the rock that, uh, that Moses strikes. And so down in verse 5, I'll let you skim the rest. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb, that's presumably Mount Sinai, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place, name of the place Massa, which means um, testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So things are amping up a little bit. First time there was the, the problem, and uh, no rebuke whatsoever um, in Exodus 17. Um, there's the striking of the rock and the accusation from Moses that they were testing the Lord not just testing him so they're, they're pushing it yeah yeah please do well I was just thinking about the picture that was on the bulletin at Trinity yesterday yeah, yeah. striking rock yes. and just how interesting it is to me that you see that and then you're talking about it today how the Lord works in bringing these things across, at least my mind, more than once. And that's just what It's true. Uh, for those of us who go to Trinity, uh, our pastor was pre- preaching on um, food, interestingly, yesterday. And he even quoted from uh, the Peter Lightheart book about God providing a menu at the end of Genesis 1. I was struck as well by that. Yeah. I thought he quoted you on waiting, too. Did you notice that? I, I did. I wondered where that came from. He's been talking to you yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Thank you, Kate. Numbers 20, you've got an, a, a very similar story. And in this case, um, yeah, it's, it's very similar. It's Numbers 20. And so, um, once again, the people were saying there's no water to drink. And did the Lord bring us here to um, die? I wish we had died already. In, in fact, and so the Lord says uh, to take the staff and to bring the water out of the rock and give drink to the congregations and their cattle. And then verse 9, the Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. The Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And he lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock But the Lord punishes Moses here and says, you're not going to go to the promised land because you didn't listen to me. And apparently that's because he didn't tell him to strike it this time. He told him to speak. And Moses struck the rock instead of just speaking. These are the waters of Meribah, which again means quarreling, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So we've got three different accounts of of quarreling and, um, and a water test. Um, The second one we have two accounts of is manna and quail in Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. So uh, this is with respect to food, not water. All the people once again grumbling against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, thinking wistfully back to those meat pots when they ate bread to the full um, back when they were in Egypt. 
And the Lord says that he's about to rain bread from heaven for them. Which he does. And um, verse 13, At the end, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. So this is on page 3, and it's um, the Lord providing quail and um, manna for them. And a slightly different account in Numbers 11, where once again they're sort of thinking back to the good old days in Egypt when they had meat and fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. And now there's nothing but all this manna to look at. And not only so, I mean, talk about adding insult to injury. Even when God provides the manna for them, um, verse, verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout the camp. Now, why are they weeping? They're weeping because they're feeling sorry for themselves. God has just given them manna, but he hasn't given them meat in the desert. And in fact, that's what it says in verse 13, For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. Now this is really interesting. Uh, There are two problems here. I mean, one is that the people are weeping because they want meat, and the second is that Moses is exhausted and says, okay, I'm really tired of this. People just go ahead and kill me. And and so so God graciously responds to both of these, and he responds first of all to Moses by saying, they're going to be 70 um, elders, and I'm going to take some of the spirit that is on you, and I'm going to give that spirit to the 70 elders so that they can help you in your task. and, the, and then the other thing is is that um, there's going to be quail coming in from the sea. Now I find this interesting because the word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach and the word for wind in Hebrew is ruach. So the wind from God actually brings two things. One, it brings the prophetic word of God into the camp. And second of all, it brings the quail into the camp. And it's interesting that once again in this passage... The provision of food is accompanied by the provision of prophecy and the word of God. These two things are um, intertwined because, because he's meeting Moses' need. But there's a sense in which this is the provision that the people really need. So it goes back to that whole very close conjunction of food and the will or the word of God. It comes up again. And, and so I love this passage when it says... Um, Verse 29, Moses said to Joshua, who's saying, you know, stop these people from prophesying. And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's uh, people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his ruach, his spirit, upon them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a ruach from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. And when they start eating the quail, that becomes a judgment upon them. And the anger was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. So, um, because of their murmuring, because of their complaining. But once again in this passage, you see this very, very close conjunction of the Spirit and the wind, uh, or the Word of God, and, um, and food. Okay, then there's the golden calf, which is in Exodus 32, 4 through 20. Um, I won't say too much about that, except to say that um, this is 
This is, as it were, the fall of Israel. They've received the commandment, and it's almost reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. They've received a commandment, or in the process of receiving a commandment, um, and they immediately fall away. And it's and it is interestingly, um, I mean, there are several things involved here, but part of it is is food. So they were, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It says in uh, in verse six. So there's a food test there as well. Then Moses on the mountain. This is interesting because um, Moses goes up on the mountain. Well, I'll read it to you and you tell me what the connection is between food and the Word of God in this case. Exodus 34, 27 through 30. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. What's the relationship between food and water and the Word of God? Yeah, I mean this this passage in particular reminded me of John four, where uh, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is this is Moses who is not eating food; he's not drinking water. He's simply um, receiving the word of God. I said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is actually coming true in Moses. And you can already see an anticipation of Jesus um, in the wilderness, going 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking. So once again, there's that close conjunction. In this case, while the people were so concerned about food and not very concerned about the commandments of God, here then is the positive counterpoint to that. Moses who does care about the commandments and the word of God, and that becomes his food, or uh, suffices for his food in that case. And it's interesting to me, because this kind of... um, I mean, this is an Old Testament example of glorification. This is an Old Old Testament example of the radiance of God um, reflecting from a human being. And when you consider that um, that being clothed with the, with the power of the Spirit, that being clothed with the glory of God, you think about the promise um, at the end of Luke that the, that the disciples themselves would be clothed with that sort of um, that sort of glory. When you consider that that's, that's the intended destiny of God's people, you know you wonder how the story in Genesis three might have gone differently if they cared about obeying God receiving his commandments, um, what they might have been clothed with instead of animal skins thereafter. Um, So that they weren't looking like animals, but looking more like God by the end of Genesis 3, because they understood what the true food of God is. Come down with the whole law, or just the Ten 
Well, there's there's actually more. I mean, there's but the, the Ten Commandments are in twenty. He's coming down. This is thirty-two to thirty-four is when he comes down and intercedes for the people. And in between those two places, there's a bunch of other assorted commands in the first couple chapters of uh, Genesis 21, 22, 23, somewhere in there. And then there's all the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. So all of that's together. Then he comes down, his face is glowing, presumably with all of that. And then. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then he mediates on their behalf, and then eventually they do build the tabernacle. And that takes up the rest of the time. So this, this, this account of him coming down from the mountain and his face glowing is actually after he's been up there getting not just the Ten Commandments, but you know, um, a whole bunch of other stuff, including, including the uh, instructions for building the tabernacle. Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to read Numbers 21. Just another sad example of the people complaining about this worthless food that God is providing for them. We loathe this worthless food, they say. In this case, you have the fiery serpents coming among them. And then in Nehemiah 9, this is a very another, another and very interesting example of the conjunction of food and the commandments of God. This is, of course, much later in the history of Israel, but it's Nehemiah praying. And when he prays, he prays in a way that constantly puts receiving food right up against receiving the commandments of God. So, Nehemiah 9.13 and following you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So right, side by side with the giving of the commandments and statutes and law is the giving of bread from heaven and the water from a rock. Those two things, again, are paralleled. Uh, and it seems like a theme almost. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. And then note, note this. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And there have been different suggestions to that. That might be the spirit that came down, down upon the 70 elders. So you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Um, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for your thirst. Interesting. Your spirit to instruct them, and then there's the water and the food. Again, right there side by side. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. Okay, that's the Exodus story. One food story after another, one food failure after another. Um, God being gracious, um, but also with punishments uh, as, as well. Which then brings us to the proper fulfillment of the uh, Exodus um, in the story of Jesus. But before I go on, any, any questions or comments on this section?
Okay. Now, I've already said that Matthew gives us a hint that the story of Jesus is going to be the story of a new Exodus, a better Exodus story. Because Jesus, even when he was an infant, goes down into Egypt and comes out, up out of Egypt. In all of the Gospels, um, and in particular I'm thinking of Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the moment, now that Exodus connection is very clear at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's clear at the beginning of his life in Matthew, but it's clear at the beginning of his ministry in uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, where he's baptized. And you have that voice from heaven that says, You are my beloved Son, uh, with you I am well pleased. Now, people have noticed that Jesus is called the Son there, which reminds us of lots of places in the Old Testament, but one of those places is Exodus 4.22, when it talks about Israel being God's Son. When you put that together with a few other things, it seems like the Exodus story is very much in view. Because Jesus is called the Son, and he goes through the waters of the Jordan, reminding you a bit of the Red Sea, and then he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, any one or two of those things might not mean very much, but when you put them all together, it sure does seem like the Exodus story. He's the one who's called the Son, like Israel. He goes through the waters. The Spirit leads him, and um, the Spirit reminds us of the presence of God, just as the pillar of cloud led them through the wilderness. Now you have the Spirit leading. Even in that Nehemiah 9 passage, there seems to be a connection between the Spirit and the cloud. It talks about the Spirit of the cloud and immediately talks about the Spirit. It talks about the pillar of cloud and the Spirit. Um, so you've got sonship, going through the waters, wilderness, and 40 days. When you put all that together with the fact that in the first century people were ardently expecting and hoping for a prophet to come to lead them in a new exodus, to, um, to bring them into God's promised land, as it were, into the full inheritance which they were expecting, and so constantly you had prophets rising up in the wilderness, uh, that works theologically because it sort of um, you know, reminded people of the, new exodus, uh, the promise of the new exodus in the Old Testament. But it worked uh, politically as well. I mean, if you're going to be trying to start a rebellion, the wilderness is a good place to go and try to start a rebellion uh, out, out from under the eye of the Romans as long as, as, long as possible. So um, all of that points to Jesus being baptized and going into the wilderness as an enactment, a reenactment of the Exodus story. As if to say, Jesus saying, I am the one in whom the Exodus story will come to its proper fulfillment. All of that is supported by what actually happens in the temptations. And the text that Jesus uses when he, um, when he, when he actually um, is tempted by, uh, by the devil. So let's, t- let's take the temptations uh, one at a time and uh, talk a little bit about them. Okay, the first temptation is a food temptation. And you'll notice if you look at your handout, you've got yet another food story in the wilderness. Okay, so I'm dealing with Matthew and Luke. Um, They're the only places in which you find the three temptations. Matthew has the account of Jesus' baptism and being declared the Son, but has nothing about the temptations. 
So in both Matthew and Luke, um, the, the voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then you have him going into the desert for 40 days, led by the Spirit. And what's the first temptation? Right. So the tempter comes, I'll read from Matthew. And the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become, become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then over in Luke, it's similar. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay. First question we've got to ask ourselves. When the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, what did he mean by that? Was he saying... If you are the second person of the Trinity and the eternally begotten Son of God, then prove that to me by doing a miracle. Or was he saying, if you are the fulfillment of God's purposes and plans for Israel, if you take upon yourself the mantle of bringing in the new Exodus, so you're that Son of God. If you are the human Son of God who is taking upon himself Uh, the role and the responsibility of bringing in the inheritance for God's people, then turn the stone into bread. I mean, after all, um, there was a similar miracle back in the first Exodus, right? And um, Moses managed to bring water from a rock. So if Moses brought water from a rock, why don't you bring bread from a rock? So if you're the one who is going to fulfill the new exodus, show me. Do, an exodus, do, do, do a miracle worthy of the exodus. So far you've just been starving for 40 days. But now let's see some provision of food. Let's see God provide for you in the wilderness just like he provided for Moses and the people in the wilderness. Not water out of a rock, but bread out of a rock. So do it. And I would argue that that's exactly what's going on. That, um, that the devil was saying to Jesus, if you are the one who is going to fulfill, or thinks you can fulfill, God's, pro- God's promises and plans for humanity, and you think that you're that son of God, that representative of the, uh, of the people of God, then give me an Exodus-worthy miracle. Um, that um, that this is what's going on, I think, is confirmed by the passage that Jesus quotes from. Because his response then is taken from an Exodus passage. As if they're sort of on the same sheet of music, at least as far as that goes. They're, they're, they're working from the same script. And Jesus essentially corrects the devil and says, apparently you never really got what the Exodus was all about. You read the food stories, but you never really understood what the food stories were all about. So let me just cite a little passage for you from Deuteronomy 8. And he does, which is, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And as we've seen, that's not just a summary of Deuteronomy 8. I mean, that's a summary of large passages, a large theme within the Exodus story. As a whole, but Deuteronomy 8 is on the back of the, your second handout. 
And the larger context here is very instructive. This particular context is actually very instructive. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 10. Now, as I'm reading this, I want you to think about its application to Jesus. In what way does Jesus function as the proper fulfillment of this story, of this Exodus storyline? The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So there, right there, right there is a statement of the purpose of the Exodus, and in particular the purpose of the wilderness wanderings. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier. The purpose of the wilderness is to know whether they can learn obedience and worship before they come into their inheritance. Will they get right what Adam and Eve got so wrong? And he humbled you and let you hunger. So in the wilderness, I mean, that's what really ticked the people of Israel off. He actually let them hunger for a little bit. Now, they didn't die, but he let them hunger a little bit. Kind of reminds you of the uh, disciples in the boat, right, in Mark 4. He let the storm come, and he let the water come on over into the boat. He's sleeping away. (laughs) So it's, it's not as though he says, these bad things will never happen to you. It's that when the storm comes or when the hunger comes, he promises that he will provide in his own time and in his own way. And he humbled you and let you hunger and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the hunger, their physical hunger, was meant to point them to the fact that they don't live by bread alone, but they live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. We saw that picked up in Nehemiah 9, right? Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. See the sonship language there? Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. Israel is the son of God who will receive the inheritance if they're willing to submit to the discipline. So when the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, turn the stone into bread, and Jesus responds with a quotation from this passage, is Jesus not characterizing himself as the Son who is willing to be humbled, the Son who is willing to be disciplined, the Son who, unlike Adam and unlike Israel, isn't going to grab at the inheritance? but who is willing to wait for the inheritance to come in God's own time and God's own way, in the Father's own time and way. This reference in verse 5 to the Son, together with the reference to Israel as a son in Exodus 4.22 and Israel as a son in um, Hosea 11, constitute the strongest evidence, in my view, that sonship in, um, and the temptations of Jesus has to do with Exodus sonship. And those three examples you have sonship, son of God, having to do with um, 
the role of Israel in the Exodus. This is Jesus doing it upright. So you shall keep the commandments of um, the Lord your God. Question or was there a question or comment? I was thinking, um, and, and this is the human Jesus. Yes. Um, we, we know he's divine. Yes. Yeah. So what we want to do justice to is his human nature and his human role. He had a particular human role to fulfill. Now, next week, we're going to bring in um, the divinity more specifically because we'll see that um, the food theme actually has to do with his divinity as well, especially when we get to the notion of feeding on him uh, and wanting to bring in some wisdom passages for that. But at the moment, I think uh, these passages have to do with Jesus getting right what... uh, what humanly went wrong. So he's acting in his, in his role as um, the new Adam and the new Israel. And, and, and uh, so that when we see him in the wilderness and we see him in the Exodus, this is, this is the new Adam getting right what went wrong in the garden and this is the new Israel getting right, wrong, um, getting right what went wrong in the wilderness. And in that sense, I think John Milton was exactly right. You know, John uh, Milton wrote um, Paradise Lost. And he also wrote Paradise Regained. Now, most of us are familiar with Paradise Lost, 12 books. Um, Beautiful, beautiful poetry. Not always theologically orthodox. But, um, for the most part, wonderful. And for me, it was a devotional experience when I read it. Um, But he also wrote Paradise Regained. And what's interesting about Paradise Regained and John Milton is that it's all about Jesus' um, temptations the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, because he clearly saw that as the counterpoint to the, um, the loss of paradise in the garden. And when Jesus actually said, um, when Jesus actually was not tempted um, in the wilderness, this was the victory that Adam and Eve failed to win. And on that, on that point, I think uh, John Milton was exactly right. So when Jesus quotes this passage, he's he's actually also implying that God God let me hunger, and therefore the correct response is to wait. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we will see that underlined in the other next two temptations, which is I am waiting for God to feed me in His time and His way. Now, I think He also comes across as a, a second Moses here. He's not only a second Adam. He's not only a second Israel. He's a second Moses because Moses too was the one who for 40 days and 40 nights during the 40 years in the wilderness went without food and drink and received the word of God. So I think there's a clear allusion to Jesus being a second Moses as well. And really, that's not surprising because Moses is the one who in the Exodus is the one who does, for the most part, get it right. So Moses is oftentimes compared and contrasted with Israel, apart from that time where he strikes the rock instead of just speaking to it. Most of the time, Moses comes across as the one who's getting it right while the people are getting it wrong. So for Jesus to be a new Moses is for Jesus to be the Israel that gets it right. You know. And the, the temptation or the sin and the temptation would have been taking matters into his own hands, not waiting, essentially. Yeah. Exactly. So, it, it, so, it, so it's, not that the, um, it's not that bread is wrong, and it's not that water is wrong, and it's not that the kingdom is wrong. We'll see this when the next two temptations come along. It's not that the devil ever offers anything that is wrong per se. And this goes back to my interpretation of Genesis 3. It's not that wisdom is wrong, knowledge of good and evil. Um, it's not that life is wrong, for Pete's sake. I mean, all of these things are good gifts of God. 
The question is whether you take the gifts of God in your time and in your way and use them for your own purposes or whether you use them um, in the timing and in accordance with the purposes of the giver, of the Father. Which goes back to the old Christian definition of sin. Sin has no existence apart from good. Uh, Sin is always and only a distortion of the good. You, You can't have sin apart from something good. You have something good, you pervert it, and that's sin. And so um, one of the ways in which we pervert and distort the good gifts of God is trying to take it in our own time and in our own way instead of waiting for him to give it to us. And I think that's the theme in Genesis, and I think that's the theme in Exodus, and frankly, I think that's exactly what's going on in the temptations. That Jesus is willing to wait, and and the interesting thing is that Jesus is willing to wait not only for the 40 days in the the, uh, desert, he's willing to wait the entire three and a half years of his ministry, indeed his entire life, and he's willing to wait until past the point of death. You can't wait any longer than that. Jesus is the example of someone who is willing to wait for God's inheritance to come. And it comes to him, it comes to the human Jesus, to Jesus in his human nature, in the same way it comes to us, in his resurrection. But he doesn't get that until, um, until he's died. So you can't wait any longer than that. Um, so I think that's what's going on here. Um, and, and, it, and so it, what's interesting here is that if you uh, live by every word that comes from the mouth of God and you are willing to be hum- humbled and to hunger and you keep the commandments of God by walking in His ways and fearing Him, then there is a promise. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, Notice the food imagery again. Of fountains and springs flowing out into the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley. Of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity and which you will lack nothing. It's all about food there. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. That I find interesting simply because it's pointing to the transition from garden and wilderness to um, cities and culture, which is the larger trajectory of Scripture, uh, the development of culture. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So I don't think that Jesus was denying the desire to be full, to eat and be full. He's just not willing to do it out of God's time and plan. And he's certainly not going to do it in the devil's time and plan. So when Jesus is in, in, in the wilderness, it is as if to say the exodus has begun. But I will wait for God to bring me into his promised land. For God to bring me into his kingdom. For God to bring me into his, the temple of his presence in his time and in his way. And if you keep that in mind, suddenly the next two temptations come into focus. Because there's a storyline. You begin in the wilderness... Trusting God to provide for you, even as He humbles you. And then you look forward to the eventual provision of a kingdom and of God's presence in the temple. And of course, the next two temptations have precisely to do with a kingdom and a temple. God's presence and God's land. So it's, it's, all, it's all of a piece. It's all one story here. Okay, so are you with me so far? How, how this, this, this first temptation has to do with food is hearkening back to the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve. It's this larger biblical theme of waiting for the inheritance to come. And that Jesus um, and, and, and Satan are very much on the same sheet of music here. They're both appealing to the Exodus script. And, and, and the devil is trying to say, 
let's see you do one worthy of the exodus. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the entire point. I'm going to wait, unlike the people who were not willing to wait. When they got food in the Old Testament, um, in the Exodus, by and large, it was because they weren't willing to wait. So I'm not going to fall prey to that old trap. Okay, that then brings us to the next two temptations. So you can look on, um, again, going back to the temptations, yet another food story in the wilderness. Jesus' food story in the wilderness in this case. Now, you'll notice if you just glance at Matthew and Luke that the order of the second two temptations is a bit different. So, let's go with, um, let's go with Luke for the moment. I mean, but one of them has to do with kingdoms and one of them has to do with uh, the temple. And we could talk about why the difference. But for the moment, let's go with Luke. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now what's going on with this? Uh, First of all, does the devil have the right to offer this to him? And what in the world would that possibly have to do with this thing that we've been talking about in terms of exodus and waiting. Uh, To my first question, yes, I think the devil does have the authority, at least temporarily, to offer this to him. Um, The devil himself is one of the great ones in heaven, uh, albeit turned and evil, has an immense amount of power on earth. Um, For a time, power and authority has been delivered to him. He's not called the prince of the power of the air for nothing. And essentially, I think um, I think that the devil's offer could be summed up very much in these terms, which is: if you really want to be the son of God who comes into his inheritance, keeping in mind that sonship and inheritance belong together, the son gets the inheritance. If you really think that you're the son who's going to get the inheritance, if you really want the kingdom that comes after the wilderness, the kingdom in the promised land. Got a shortcut for you. All you've got to do is acknowledge me as the great king. And I will deliver the kingdom into your hand. I have done it before. Fairly recently, I did it for Augustus. Delivered an entire kingdom into his hand. Before that, it was Alexander the Great. Before that, it was the kings of the Persians. And before that, it was the kings of Babylon. I am the one who gives kingdoms into the hands of kings. And I can do it for you. You want want a successful rebellion? I can give it to you. You you want to lead a successful revolt? The Maccabees, who last led a successful revolt against the Greeks, you know, sort of the George Washingtons of uh, of the Jews, that's nothing compared to what I could do for you. I think this is a very real political offer of dominion. Just bow down and worship me. And honor me as the great king of heaven. This is essentially um, this is essentially offering Jesus the kind of uh, the kind of thing that Adam and Eve were going for, right? Which is, I really don't. I just want the inheritance. I don't really want to wait for it to be given to me. And so, when Adam and Eve grabbed at that tree of wisdom, they were they were they were they were grabbing at 
attributes of royalty. I want the kind of wisdom that comes with royalty. I want the kind of investiture, the kind of clothing that comes with royalty. Um, and I think they saw that grab at the fruit as a grab at royalty without God. And I think that's exactly what uh, the devil is offering Jesus. I can give you that kind of kingship. I've done it before and I can do it again. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus responds by saying, you shall um, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I'll look at that context in Deuteronomy um, 6 in just a moment. But before we do that, let's look at the other one. Because again, these are all of one piece. And then the devil takes him to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Quoting there from the Psalms. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, why this particular um, temptation? Why taking him to the pinnacle of the temple and saying, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here? Um, my own view of this is that um, he's referring to, you know, once you're out of the promised land, once you're, in, I mean, once you're out of the wilderness, once you're into the promised land, and once the kingdom has been given to you, if you are the king... So in that sense, the king was also known as the Son of God, the one who individually got the inheritance. If you were the king, you had special access to the temple. One thinks of um, David going over. I mean, after all, the king's palace was right next to the temple. You think of David going over to the temple or to the tabernacles, the case may be, and um, just sort of sitting in front of uh, the Holy of Holies when God promised him a, a great a promise in Second Samuel 7. Or you think of uh, David in Psalm 51 saying, um, uh, Cast me not out of your presence and take not your spirit from me. I mean, I think, I think David was speaking quite literally there. Um, don't, don't deny me the kind of kingly access that I have to the temple, uh, which is right next door. And don't take your um, royal anointing of the spirit from me. If you do, that, then I'll, in other words, don't take your kingship from me is the idea. I think that's exactly what he's saying in Psalm 51. Don't do to me as you did to Saul and take kingship from me, which would be taking your spirit from me and denying me access to the temple. So for Jesus to be taken up to the pinnacle of the temple and then for the devil to encourage him to um, claim one of those promises of divine protection uh, for the king who takes his refuge in the Lord, I think is basically to say, go ahead and try to take advantage of one of the prerogatives of kingship. Which is, um, which is special access to the presence of God and the kind of divine protection that comes from, from making the Lord your refuge. I think it's just simply another temptation that says, try to take your inheritance ahead of time. There are certain things that come with being the Son of God. There are certain things that come with that inheritance. Access to the presence of God and the royal patrimony and inheritance. So act right now as if you're enjoying those things in their fullness. Act as if God will protect you now as he's promised to protect his king. Act as if God will give you the kingdom now as he's promised to do. If you really are the king, if you really are Israel, which is supposed to receive the inheritance, go ahead and take it. Just do it. There's a good slogan for you. And um, in this case, too, Jesus says, absolutely not. And in this case, too, he quotes from the exact same passage, not the same verse, but the same passage that he quoted from in the other temptation. So for the second and third temptations, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. 
for the first temptation it was Deuteronomy 8. So look on the back of your sheet. And this is Jesus essentially telling the devil, I understand the Exodus in a way that you don't. I am not going to grab at my inheritance, whether it has to do with access to God's presence in the temple and the benefits that accrue from that, or whether it has to do with uh, just being a king and having all the kingdoms being given to me. This is Deuteronomy 6, and this is the passage that, that Jesus is quoting from not once but twice for the second two temptations. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. So there's that provision of good food, again. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve. Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the one response that he gives to Satan after the, after the temptation to jump from the temple. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve. So remember who's giving you the inheritance. Not the other gods, but the Lord God. And by his name you shall swear, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. It seems that Jesus recognized this temptation by a devil as a real temptation to go after other gods, not the Lord God. For the Lord your God is in your midst, uh, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's for the second temptation of Luke. As you tested him at Massa, and it even goes back to the food test at Massa. So don't put your Lord your God to the test. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. So here's Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry announcing to those who had ears to hear and eyes to see and even announcing to the devil himself, this is what my ministry is all about. Um, It is about doing what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. And in his time and in his way, I will go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to our fathers. And I will allow him to thrust out all my enemies before me. And you put that together with Deuteronomy 8... Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, it's all about waiting for God to feed you, waiting for God to give you the promised land, waiting for God to give you the blessings of His presence in their fullness in the temple, and the blessings of the good land in His time and in His way. This is Jesus getting it right as the new Adam and as the new Israel, as a kind of new Moses. Okay, before I do the, the, uh, the final section, what do you think? I know this is, um, my guess is this is not your standard interpretation. I mean, it's, actually it's standard in some circles, but it's not standard in a lot of circles. So, does this seem very strange or make sense?
Yeah, to me, it's 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 beautiful in which in the way in which at the very beginning of his ministry, the um, major stories and themes from the Old Testament are brought together, and um, and summed up, and as if to say, Jesus is the one who will do it right. And I've only mentioned the Exodus theme. Actually, there's a lot more going on here. It's actually amazing how complex and beautiful this passage is. It, um, it certainly pulls in the Exodus um, you know, with the beloved son. It pulls in Isaac, who is the beloved son in Genesis 22, who um, will suffer before he gets the inheritance. Um, it pulls in some uh, kingship themes as well and pulls in the suffering servant. So a lot is going on in this passage. It's quite amazing to me that in this baptism passage how many themes and storylines from the Old Testament are drawn together as if to say all of this comes to its proper climax. All of it's come to its proper climax and conclusion in Jesus. Well, that's what his whole life was. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's, it's beautiful. Okay. By way of anticipation for next week, I'm not going to say uh, too much on this because I uh, want to sort of give an indication of where we're going. Um, the other time in which Jesus is called a son... He's called the son at his baptism. You are my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Does anybody know the other point at which he's declared to be the beloved son, the son of God? Transfiguration. So these act as bookends to his ministry. One begins his ministry, the baptism, very much evoking the uh, story of the Exodus. And actually the transfiguration does the same thing. I won't say as much about it because it's not a food theme. But the transfiguration is very much going back to well, Exodus 32 to 34, when Moses goes up on the mountain and is transformed by the radiant glory of God. This now then happens, um, well, to Moses and to Elijah and also to Jesus, which should give us an indication that what's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration is not an unzipping of the divine glory of Jesus, because it's happened to Moses and Elijah and they're not divine, but rather a revelation of what Jesus will be in his resurrection glory. It's an anticipation of his resurrection glory. In a very real sense, it's um, an anticipation of the completion of the Exodus. And that's really clear in Luke 9, where um, right after the uh, transfiguration, it talks about Jesus needing to um, complete his Exodus to Jerusalem. He's on his Exodus to Jerusalem and uses that particular word. So you have an indication in Luke um, that the completion of the Exodus will be, which is to say the the reception of the inheritance um, has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. And and in the Christian way of understanding things, at least in the biblical way of understanding things, um, resurrection is tied up with our inheritance because resurrection is part of what happens when you get the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, you're not going to enjoy transformed heavens and transformed earth if you don't have a transformed body. So you need a new body for the new heavens and the new earth. You need a resurrection body for the glorified creation, glorified body for the glorified creation. And there is an indication that um, Jesus, having successfully gone through the wilderness and um, having successfully obeyed God, will now bring in the blessing, and that's anticipated in the transfiguration. It will be the blessing of resurrection. So there is an anticipation, transfiguration, anticipation, once again, going back to the story of the Exodus in a very strong way. And there is also, um, by the end of the Gospels, as we know, a new Exodus meal. 
this theme of the Exodus keeps coming back up again and again. So that before Jesus um, is crucified and uh, before he is resurrected, he does institute the Lord's Supper, which is a new Exodus meal. It's, it's, a, it's a Christian version of the Passover meal. So there's a new meal for the new people of God who are undergoing the new exodus, which will result in a new promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, with bodies to match. That's, that's the great good news um, of the New Testament. So what I would like to do um, next week is to talk a little bit more about that new exodus meal. Um, and so we need to talk about the Lord's Supper, which will involve going back a little earlier in the story of the exodus, talking about the Passover lamb. Um, and talking about this amazing thing that happens where um, the feast that God invites us to that, um, that is in the present but also points to the future and actually partakes of the future in this case is um, actually not something that is brought to us by Jesus only but that is Jesus. And so at the end of the day um, he's not just the new Moses, the new Israel, the new Adam, he is the Passover lamb, and he is the one on whom we feast. And we really can't talk, we can't conclude a series on, um, on food without talking about the way in which Jesus becomes food for us. And so next week we'll talk about that, and we'll need to bring in um, some of the ways in which the wisdom theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament come together in Jesus as the one upon whom we feed. Um, as we look forward to our coming inheritance. That becomes the means, indeed, of uh, part, part of the means of our inheritance. Okay. Good. Any final questions? Comments? Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful, so very grateful to you that from the very beginning you have um, provided for us, given, given us great gifts. You're a Father who cares for your people, who bends down to feed them. And we thank you, dear Lord, that um, you have also arranged a great and glorious inheritance for us. And Lord, we know that too often we haven't been willing to wait. We've wanted to take your gift and leave you behind. So we pray that you'll help us um, not to be like Adam, not to be like Israel. Um, Help us to be like our Lord Jesus who shows us what it means to wait. And we pray to your Lord that you will conform us to the likeness of the Son who was glorified, who is now glorified, and give us the hope of being like him, of ruling and reigning with him. And Lord, we pray too that even this week you will help us um, to feast on him in our hearts. Lord, give us an occasion too to feast on him in the Lord's Supper as well. Feed us, we pray, and help us, Lord, this week um, to flee from the kind of idolatry um, in which we, we feed that which should bring us strength. Help us rely upon you and to turn to you for the nourishment and the nurture that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.